Uh, welcome to our Bible study on this Thursday. Uh, and uh, we will look at the uh, biblical accounts of the ascension of Jesus, uh, the, if you like, the purpose of it that is given in the purpose of the Old Testament background, and then try to answer the questions of why does it matter, why is it important, and what difference uh, does it make? Uh, mostly looking at various Bible passages, so that I hope that your Bible uh, scanning thumbs are feeling nimble. We'll be sort of looking across mostly the New Testament, but also some passages of the Old Testament, as well as some other uh, Christian documents, creeds and confessions. But let's open first with prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you have given all authority to Jesus. Uh, who sits at your right hand as head of the church. We thank you for the grace and mercy that he has revealed to us and brought to us by his suffering, death, and, and his resurrection. And we thank you that it is he who governs all things for our salvation. So as we now study together, we pray that our hearts may be fixed more firmly to your promises in Jesus Christ, that following him we might come to share in the glory that you have given to him. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let me begin by asking you some questions. <clears throat> I will in a moment put some things on the screen for you to uh, to uh, look at as well. But the question, first question is, uh, when is the ascension? How do we time the ascension? We all know when Christmas is, right? Yeah. Yeah, 25th of December. Uh, when's the epiphany? Here's go. Here's the, we start with the quiz. When is the epiphany? Um, 7th of January. 6th of January. <laughs> 6th of January, yes. 6th of January, so 13th day is uh, after the 12th, 12th day, of, 12th days of Christmas, 6th of January. Uh, when's Easter? It varies every year. But somebody has to decide where it is every year. So where, where, when is it? How do we decide when it is each year? Is it something to do with the moon? It is indeed. That's why it moves around. Anyone? It's the first Sunday following the full moon, following the uh, spring equinox. Uh, so that's why the earliest date it can be is the 22nd of March, because it's for spring equinox. So if spring equin equinox is full moon, then the Easter is on the 22nd of March. And the latest date I'm doing from the top of my head is about the 25th of April. Uh, but I can't remember the exact date, but it can be quite late. Very rarely that early or that late. But yes, so that's when Easter is. <clears throat> so when's Pentecost? And the answer's in the name, if you know your Greek. Five something. Mm. <laughs> so here now, if you don't know his your guessing time, if you do know, <laughs> don't be shy to show off your knowledge. Fifty days of. Fifty days is the fiftieth day of uh of from from Easter, um, as it was already in the uh, Old Testament. Uh, you know, you have the Feast of Pentecost, which is uh, the second harvest festival, forty seven weeks uh, of uh, after the Passover. Um, so when's the ascension? Wasn't it 40 days after Easter? It's always 40 days after Easter. 
Okay. 40 days, which is why it, all, which is why it always falls on a Thursday. <clears throat> Thursday, uh, 40 days after Easter. There you go. So that was round one. Round two questions. Um, <clears throat> what do you know about where did it take place? From where did Jesus ascend? Oh, Actually, there are two different places. So one is in Jerusalem and the other one is in Galilee. Right. So now we have a problem <laughs> because it can't have happened. If the, if Jesus was ascended from, from the earth in the company of whom? Who was he with? Some of his disciples, wasn't he? Yes. The 11 surviving apostles and po- quite likely some other disciples too, but yes. So if he was Jesus ascended from the earth, uh in the company of his disciples, it can't have been in two places at once, can it? No. So we've got a kind so where does the where does the Galilee location Galilee come from? Well it's in uh Israel. <laughs> now, why why Galilee? Why do we say Galilee? Well, it's the only water apart from the Mediterranean. It's nothing to do with water, I'm afraid, of the ascension. Didn't take place from water. Don't know. But Jesus, didn't Jesus say that, that when he appeared to the disciples, he said that go to Galilee and, oh no, at, at the, at the grave. Tell the th- disciples to go to, the, to Galilee and I will meet them there. Yes, so Jesus did meet. Oh, yes, he said to the women, tell the disciples so he will meet them. Galilee, we've got the account in, in John 21 of Jesus, uh, you know, the, when the disciples go fishing and Jesus meets them by the Sea of Galilee. And importantly, at the end of Matthew 28, we are told that when Jesus, uh, Jesus is on the mountain in Galilee, where he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We'll look at that passage a bit later on. Importantly, though, that doesn't, that passage doesn't say that he is, that he ascended to heaven from there. That was before his ascension. We do have a very specific location for the ascension, <clears throat> uh, which we'll look at in a minute, which is Jerusalem. Outside Jerusalem. Okay, so that's <clears throat> that's the aware of it. So when, when we have Galilee, Jesus meets the disciples in Galilee before the ascension, but the ascension itself doesn't take place uh, from there have you do you feel that you've been sufficiently quizzed to get you going (laughs) one more question this is the theological question so the ascension takes place so what so what that jesus is ascended why does it why is that important that's pentecost that's 10 days later it's not entirely an incorrect answer but it wasn't on the day of ascension. <coughs> because that was the plan. But can't the plan have been something else? I mean, does it make any difference? Does it matter? Well, didn't he foresee that or foretell that? Even then, the question is, is it is it just something that just happened to happen? But it doesn't really matter or it doesn't make any difference. Or is it actually significant in some theological way, in a biblical way, significant that Jesus ascended into heaven. So what if he hadn't? What if what if something else God had had a different plan? Would it make any difference at all? 
the when the angel said that the, the way you saw him going, you see him coming back. Okay, so it's linked to uh, Jesus' uh, return, as we will see. Also, linked, that's also stated in the creed. Okay, looks like we need to. Those, these are some of the questions we will be looking at today. And uh, I, I, I really wanted to know that I didn't. I wasn't wasting your time by telling you, you know, selling calls to Newcastle. The ascension. Uh, as, I, as I promised, uh, we've got a. Uh, I've, I've made a. If, if you were in, in my living room right now in the parsonage, or we somewhere else, we're in the same building, we could be uh, looking at this. Uh, you know, I could give you a piece of paper, a handout, but that is not possible. And so. I'm going to put it on the screen. Can you see the handout on your screens? Yes. Yes. I'll make it a bit bigger, shall I? So the ascension of our Lord, when, what, where, and why. And these are all the Bible passages we're going to be looking at. So we are going to start. Uh, with the very simple question, we already uh, kind of answered this question, but let's look at what the actual Bible passage is. So Acts 1 and the first three verses. Um, we could have this as a competition. Whoever finds it first gets to read. But um, at least that's what we would do if this was youth rally. So, Acts 1, 1, one to 3. I'll start. In my former book, Theophilies, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Thank you. So where we are, this is uh, therefore uh, 40 days after uh, the resurrection, as you can see. 40 days after the resurrection, uh, which places uh, uh, it, it just before. Uh, Pentecost. Now, what happened in those 40 days, according to this passage? He talked. Yes, he appeared to his disciples on and off. Now, as, as far as we can tell, there's very little detail about this in the New Testament, uh, except that he appeared to them uh, from time to time. Who is it that he appeared to? Um, and the answer is that he, he appeared, to, according to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, said he appeared uh, to the uh, surviving apostles. Uh, this, uh, uh, and then he appeared to, and let me just find the list. Uh, so he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, Cephas being Peter. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that is the brother of Jesus, 
and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Jesus, in his 40 days, Jesus appeared to various disciples. We know on the road to Emmaus, he appeared. There were two uh, Cleopas and another disciple whose name we don't know. And in this 40 days, Jesus continues to uh, appear to them and uh, and teaches them. And speaking them about the kingdom of God. So a lot of the things that, you know, there are, you know, we can ask our questions of how would, you know, for example, if Jesus went to pray in Gethsemane and uh, all the disciples fell asleep and Jesus was praying alone, yet we have accounts in the New Testament of exactly what Jesus prayed. Well, how would they have known? The answer is, of course, there's all the time after the resurrection uh, between before the ascension when Jesus uh, would have been teaching them. Moreover, he taught them about the kingdom of God. In other words, he prepared them to uh, prepare them for the ministry that they were uh, about to start uh, with the ministry of preaching on the day of Pentecost. And so having been teaching them for three years, he was now, if you like, just like on the road to Emmaus, uh, what Jesus seems to have done is, is he's now taken all that he has taught them thus far in the light of the resurrection so that they they are ready. So when they start preaching, they they know exactly how to teach the significance importance of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so that's when, what happened? We've got two accounts, both from Luke, and Luke is the only one who gives us the actual, an account of, of the uh, ascension. He gives it twice as the end of part one of his account, which is the gospel of Luke, chapter 24, if you turn to that, then he tells it again, at the beginning of part two, uh, which is Acts. So keep your finger in Acts one, but let's turn to Luke 24 and the last uh, four verses, 50 to 53. Do I read it? Thank you. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Thank you. So we have a very brief account there. So this is Bethany. Bethany is uh, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, uh, which is just outside uh, Jerusalem. And he gets, gets to Bethany on the Mount of Olives, and he, he said he blessed them, parted from them, and was carried up into heaven. And look at what he says. These we're going to return to this. And they worshipped him. What does that mean? What does worship mean in the Bible? What does worship mean? If, if worship takes place in the Bible, what's happening? Uh... They're, uh, oh, I can't think of it. Bow down? Yes. They bow down. They were, you know, they, they, they were either kneeling or possibly prostrate, prostrate on the ground. Worship in the, when, whenever you come across the word worship in the Bible is a reference to posture. I've, I've made this point before, but the, the famous Famous passage in, 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 that we have in one of our services is Psalm 95 in Matins every morning. Uh, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. 
And in fact, the, first, the second word, bio, or second exp, uh, expression, bow down, and third one is kneel. But actually, the first one, this is worship, really means let's, let us prostrate ourselves and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And I always find it ironic that we sing it standing bolt upright. Um, you know, we, 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 we say that we take the Bible very serious, but sometimes we give ourselves allowances. So they worshiped Jesus and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now they were parted from Jesus. Jesus taken from them. Last time Jesus had been taken from them was when? When he was crucified. That's right. Yeah. When he's taken away from, he's arrested and crucified. What was their reaction then? Despair. Hmm. They were despairing, they were frightened, they were sad, they thought they all was lost. Now Jesus is taken from them, and they rejoice. So there's a question for us to think about. We'll answer it later on. What, what's the difference this time? Why are they joyful when Jesus is taken from them rather than disappointed or sad? The, because he's risen from the dead, and um, he told them he would be going back to heaven. But you could still see that if he's going back to heaven, it's a bit like, you know, you know let's say, you know, your uh, some some relative, you know, a child or brother or, or or a friend who lives somewhere far away comes to say they go back home. It's still a point. You know, it still can be a sad thing because we are parted from. Them. But we'll look. What we'll do? We'll answer that question a bit later and say why is it a source of joy that Jesus is in heaven rather than here visibly uh, on earth? Luke tells the same account again in Acts one verses nine and ten. Who'd like to read those? Acts 1, 9 and 10. I'll read it. Thank you. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Okay. Actually, could you read the next verse as well, please? Yeah. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Okay, let's just uh, stop there for a moment. So where is Jesus taken to? He's going to heaven. Heaven. Now, you had in your translation, Mike, Yeah. you had two different uh, words there where were they looking to the, the, the apostles up into the sky the sky but jesus was taken up into heaven now this is uh, a good time for us to remember that uh, uh when it comes to uh, all kinds of uh, central theological concepts english is an, a distinctly unhelpful language uh <laughs> because it has it, it mixes things up by using different words for the same thing and so the word sky and the word heaven are the same word. It's not two different things. Right. In, in the Bible. And, and in fact, the ESV, those of you who are reading from the ESV or RSV, I presume it's the same, just uses the same word. They gazed intently into heaven. Now he was taken up from them, but it doesn't say he went up into the sky. What, where does he go instead? Did he go up as a spirit? Oh, now this is an important question. <laughs> what 
What does it say though in the text? The short answer is no, but uh, we'll talk about that in a, in just a moment. Went up into a cloud. He was well. It doesn't say he went to. Invent. Hmm. Cloud hid him from sight. Hmm. Okay, now if I say, ask you, you know, can you think of any times or places in the Bible where clouds have a significant role to play? Can you think of any? In yes, when the when the the people were going through with Moses, they said that all the time the there was this cloud, you know, during daytime, leading them. Pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. That's right. So the people of Israel were, were led throughout the Exodus by a pillar of cloud. Anything else to do with Exodus and Moses and cloud? Well, the cloud was the one that always filled the temple, the tabernacle, while, while God was there. So they All right. Okay, so the cloud is the presence of God. Is it like a visible sign of God's presence? In the tabernacle, when God's glory fills the temple, is enveloped in a cloud. There's also Mount Sinai, when Moses up, Mount Sinai is covered with a cloud. When the temple is consecrated uh, uh, during time of Solomon, a cloud descends on it. And we have a vision of Ezekiel, for example. We see that the glory of God departing from Jerusalem just before Jerusalem is destroyed. And then later, at the end of the uh, book of Ezekiel, the temple is rebuilt and the glory of the Lord returns. And Ezekiel sees. So what does he see for the glory of the Lord? It doesn't say, but the, the, the uh, assumption, what we can safely assume is that it is a cloud. The cloud is, the, is always, it conveils the presence of God on earth. What about the New Testament? There's one very important cloud in the New Testament, apart from this one. During the Transfiguration. Very good. During the Transfiguration, we see Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And then the cloud hides them from view. A cloud descends on the mountain. And then when, when the cloud lifts, there's a voice from the cloud, which is the voice mm-hmm. of God, the Father. And then... Next thing, when the cloud lifts, they see no one but Jesus alone. So cloud in the Bible, in, in these significant moments, is, is a, a, a uh, manifestation of the presence of God on earth. And the cloud, what do, what do clouds do? Well, they, they conceal. And so the glory, you know, the Moses asked to see the glory of God, and he doesn't get to see the glory. He only gets to see the back. And what's he see the back of? Presumably, again, you know, the cloud moving. But so when when we we are told that Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. What should we be thinking then? What 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 should we be reading into this? What does that tell us? He's on his way to heaven. More specific still. More specific. Um, going back to God. Yeah, that he is entering into the presence of God, and he's now in the presence of God, and therefore out of sight, within the cloud. Mm-hmm. He's within the cloud, and therefore out of sight, because he's now in the presence of God, rather than in our presence. Mm-hmm. 
And this kind of raises the important question, which it is very difficult for us to answer, is that the way we say that Jesus ascended to heaven, exactly where does he go? <laughs> where is that? So let's look at the next uh, set of Bible passages, uh, which answer that question. Um, where to? Where did Jesus go to? So uh, it could have three people, uh, three different people uh, to read. But so the first one is the end of Mark, uh, Mark's gospel, the last uh, couple of verses of Mark 16. If somebody would like to read that. Um, Hebrews, the first set uh, verses of Hebrews and then 1 Peter chapter 3. I can start with Mark. Thank you. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And then they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Okay, so according to this passage here, where did Jesus go? To heaven. To heaven and? To the right hand of God. The right hand of God. We'll keep that phrase in your mind. We're going to return to that phrase in just a moment. Heaven, the right hand of God. Somebody got Hebrews 1, first four verses mm. there? Yes. Thank you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by, by, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we ask, thank you, we ask the same question. According to this, where is Jesus? Again, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right hand of the majesty on high. I mean, uh, Hebrews is written by, uh, by a Jewish Christian author and, and, uh, Jewish, uh, for first century Jewish, uh, writings often sort of refer to God by, you know, try to avoid referring to God as God unnecessarily. So there are also the ways of saying, so he's referred to as the majesty. Uh, he's sat on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's God the Father. And it says specifically, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, heaven, right hand of God, seated. That's three things for you to hold in your heads now. And uh, finally, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. Just a few pages on from where we were now. Well, I can read it. Thank you. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for all the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Thank you. Okay, so there we have the phrase from the Creed. He descended into hell, rose again, ascended into heaven. Comes from this passage in 1 Peter 3. So where is Jesus? What has, what new information have we learned? We've already established that he's in heaven at the right hand of God seated. What new information have we now gathered here? Authority and power given to him. Authority and power have been given to him and all things to be, you know, or, or specifically this is authority and powers are subjected to him. So he, he, he is, he has authority and power all over all authorities and powers now this uh all of this is encapsulated in the psalm that is if i remember correctly i have didn't check this beforehand but i'm pretty confident i'm I'm correcting this there's a there's one verse of one psalm that is quoted more in the new testament than any other here's your chance to shine who's good at guessing or who has a superior knowledge which psalm verse do you think is quoted most frequently? I can tell you which psalm verse is quoted most frequently in Christian churches. Almost certainly is the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Possibly followed by, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Neither of which is quoted in the New Testament, although Jesus obviously refers to that in, implicitly told by himself as the good shepherd. But which psalm do you think, psalm verse, is most frequently quoted in the New Testament? Nobody feeling brave? No. (laughs) It's Psalm 110, verse 1, which, as you all remember, says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, looking at these, <clears throat> looking at these passages, we, what we see here is a fulfillment of what David spoke in Psalm 110. The Lord, with capital letters, so Yahweh, says to my Lord. Remember, Jesus himself quotes this and said, if, if David calls him Lord, how is he David's son? And they couldn't answer him. So the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. God the Father says to Jesus, put it that way, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now, let's let's break this down. Right hand. If you're seated at somebody's right hand, what is that? What does that mean? Special. Yes. What kind of special? What kind of special? Well, most people, I guess, um, their right hand is very special. 
dominant. Yes, it is dominant. In this particular case, it, the, the main reference isn't to dominance. It's to, if you're seated somewhere at somebody's right hand. It's an important position. It is. in what, And it's, it's particularly, it's a place of honour. Oh. You know, we have, you know, we, if you refer to somebody as your right hand man, it's like, this is, this is the person who's closer to me. So if you're seated at a, at a dinner party or, or, or a feast or festival and you're seated on the right hand side of the host, that's the place of honor. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, if you're sitting at God's right hand, that's it. That's the place of honor in all of God's kingdom. Seated. But isn't that just hypothetical because they were spirits? Ah, not quite. <laughs> not quite. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that question in a minute. But when he says he sat down, it doesn't just say that he's seated, but he sat down. He, you know, he, he, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. If you're seated, any, any idea what that, what that signifies? That that position is established. Yes, it's established and it's uh, not temporary. King sits on the throne. Yes. So, who sits? If if you're in a throne room, who sits? The queen. That's an example. Give me the kind of the principle. Who gets to sit in the throne room? Royalty. Man with the honor. The person who's in power or authority. Now, if you go to a courtroom, when the judge walks in and says, uh, you know, they, they say, all rise. And you don't yeah. sit until you're told to sit down. You sit after he sits. Yeah, because the one who's in judgment, the one who actually wields the power and authority in that room, they have the right to sit. You have been granted that right if it is granted. And so when he says Jesus went, you know, went to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God, he was, that, that placed him in a position of authority. Which takes us back to another Old Testament passage, which is in Daniel chapter seven, uh, uh, which Jesus himself quotes at his own trial, uh, where we are told, uh, or this is one of the visions that Daniel has. So if you, if you, I don't know if you, when you last read the book of Daniel, but the first six chapters of Daniel are all the famous stories. You know, the three young men in the fire and the, and the lion's den and all that kind of business, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. The second half, 7 to 12, the other six chapters, are full of all kinds of very strange uh, visions. And we have this uh, very famous passage. And uh, this is chapter 7, verse 13 onwards. Oh, let's, I'll go from verse 9 first. As I looked, Daniel says, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery. Flames. So that's in verse nine. Thrones were set and the ancient of days, as God, took his seat on his throne. Now, verse 13 goes on like this. In the, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Mm. Does that sound at all familiar in content, even if you're not familiar with the verse itself? 
With the clouds of heaven, there came one like son of man. Where do we hear that in the New Testament? Anyone? Can't remember. At his trial. Are you the son of God? He said, you say that yeah. I am. And I tell you, you will see the son of man coming with the clouds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember now. Yes. Coming with the clouds of heaven. But here we saw not somebody coming down from clouds of heaven with the clouds of heaven, but some beyond with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days, not from the ancient of days. Mm. Da, da, da. Last time Jesus was seen on earth was doing what? With his disciples. But what was the last, last glimpse of him? What was happening? He was going up in a cloud. cloud. He, he he disappeared into a cloud, so yeah. he, he was concealed by a cloud. And next, and here we have it, someone who came to the ancient days with the clouds of heaven. So it's like this is a it's, it begins to sound terrible, like Star Trek. <laughs> you know, you kind of step into a cloud in one place and you come out the other side in another place. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that whether they thought of it or not, the, whoever wrote that thing in there, I can't remember what the thing's called in Star Trek. It's not my kind of thing, but uh, is almost certainly influenced by this kind of, you know, this this sort of idea is probably where, where they got it from. Jesus is concealed by a cloud from their sight and with or he comes, he comes to the presence of God and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations languages serve him and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So he's coming to the clouds of, in the to, to the presence of God is the delivery uh, deliverance to him of uh, of authority and power that and and an everlasting kingdom given to Jesus so that all creatures should serve him. So we begin to see that when we say that Jesus came to was at the right hand of God and took his seat there, that is the giving to Jesus of all glory and honor and power in God's kingdom. And I mean, I could at this point, we could just spend the next hour looking through all the various New Testament passages where this idea of Jesus, God giving to authority and power to Jesus uh, is talked about, because it's, it is one of the predominant themes of the New Testament. That all authority has been given to Jesus. We haven't got time for all of that, so we're just going to sk- uh, skip along uh, merrily. But when now, the one, one final question then. So when he says that Jesus is in heaven, exactly what do we mean? What is heaven? I think it's wherever God's presence is. Correct. Now, it's, I mean, the, the word means sky. And so, you know, G- Jesus begins to ascend and they kind of keep looking up. And the angels don't say to him, said, you know, he's gone so high up that you can't see him. He says, says, why are you staring up into the sky? Because this Jesus, you know, this Jesus taking you from you will. You see him come as he as he went. In other words, if you want to know where Jesus is, don't look up. It's not up there. It's not in the sky. It's not among the stars. One of the lies that was told, you know, when Yuri Gagarin went into space, first man go to space, there was a afterwards a various a propaganda posters in the Soviet Union 
quoted him as saying, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I went up to heaven and I didn't see God. Now, as far as we know, Yuri Gagarin never saw that. And as far as we know, he was in fact a Christian, <laughs> even though he had to keep it fairly quiet, I suspect, in the, in the Soviet system. But even if you, if you travel through the whole of the universe, you wouldn't find God. Mm-hmm. I saw a very interesting video. There's a, um, uh, a, um, a, a British based, uh, organization called Speak Life that does, you know, they do sort of evangelism and apologetics and all kinds of, you know, very, uh, very, very gifted bunch of people. Um, I don't know if any of you saw about a year ago, um, there was, a, I, I, I did an online interview. I was interviewed about Lutheranism online by an australian fella um i i did share it at the time so it's on, on youtube but he that that's them and uh and he's um and they talk about and they, they did a recently did a video about um uh, about the whole whole thing of um about where you know kind of this question of where where is god and the video was entitled god is not a supernatural being okay and and the point that was and it's um, i'll I'll, I'll see if I can find the video. I'll share it with you. I'll send it. You can watch it in your own. But basically the point was that, you know, and they made a comparison between the, our world and, uh, Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm-hmm. You know, that in, in Midsummer Night's Dream, as you, if you, if you know that play, it's got some ordinary creatures and supernatural beings. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the question, you know, where, where, you know, who, who where is God or who is God? Is not like saying, you know, you're in Midsummer Night's Dream and the plane say, you know, where is Oberon or who's Oberon? Who's the kind of the, the chief supernatural being? God is not to the world like Oberon is to the fairies in, in the Midsummer Night's Dream. God is like Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's the mind that created all these things. And so when we say, where is God? It's, you know, asking, looking for God in the universe, but looking for Shakespeare in a Midsummer Night's Dream. You're looking completely in the wrong place. It's a d- wrong kind of search. They put it better than I do. So I'll, I'll send the video out afterwards if you, if you like to watch it. It's about a minute, minute long, uh, maybe two minutes long. But it's very good. Um, so to say that Jesus has gone to heaven doesn't mean that he's located from one part of the universe to another part of the universe. God is not in the universe. The universe is like the stage that God has created for us. But he himself is neither contained by or limited to the universe. He's present in it, but it's not where he is. God the Father, Mike, you're absolutely right. God the Father has no body. He has no, there is no, he hasn't got a hand with, with fingers and thumb. And so when we say God, Jesus at the right hand of God, he's not to say that, you know, God has a right and a left hand and just, just to the right hand side of God's right hand is Jesus. However, you are slightly mistaken, or actually, no, I'm going to have to say this, Mike. Sorry, don't take this personally, but you, you, you pronounced a terrible heresy, <laughs> which I'm glad you don't actually believe when you say that Jesus left his body behind. Because he didn't. Notice that it's to Jesus that the authority has been given. Now, when we say Jesus, we are making very specific reference to the Son of Mary. Not to the you eternal know. Son of God, in, but to the incarnate Son of God. Same person. I mean, we're not saying that there are two, you know, that there's two, two things. There's the son of God and then there's Jesus. The son of God became Jesus. And when he ascended to heaven, he remains Jesus. He didn't leave his humanity behind. I mean, so he's in a body up there then. 
exactly. Well, he's in the presence of God in his body, and he inhabits that body, and will do, for all eternity. And that's very important. We'll see a bit later, uh, we see why it's important. But this is one of the things where, the, at the time of the Reformation, for example, there were massive arguments between the Lutheran reformers and some of the other reformers, both in Germany, especially in Switzerland, who, where the, the, the southern German and Swiss reformers argue that, uh, you know, we can't possibly, the body of Christ can't possibly be in the sacrament because it's at the right hand of God. And if and it's God is God is a uh, one of three persons. Well, God is one God in three persons. Yeah. But if if the body of Jesus is the right hand of God the Father, then he can't be in Wittenberg or in Stockholm or in Pharaoh. <laughs> because those are two different places. If it's a human body, it's either in one place or it's in another. And the Lutherans argued back and said that the right hand of God is not a is not a point in space. The right hand of God is a biblical expression which refers specifically not to a location in heaven. Because that's misunderstanding. That kind of takes heaven to be like the universe, kind of this location somewhere, you know, on the other side of Pluto or something. But the right hand of God in the Bible is an expression that refers to the activity and the power of God. And so we say, Jesus, the right hand of God, we can say, oh, both he's in a position of authority and honour in relation to God the Father. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. You know, all things have been subjected to him, except, of course, the one who subjected all things to him is not. So, in other words, God the Father is not subjected to Jesus. He's the one who subjected all things under Jesus' feet. But also, so it's Jesus' honour, but also that God's right hand is wherever God is working. You know, Barbara, you said quite right, you know, most people are right-handed, so generally speaking, culturally speaking, and this, you know, obviously left-handed people operate the other way around. It doesn't matter, but right hand is the, is the hand with which you do anything important. And they use the left hand is kind of there either to assist or to do things that you don't want to get your right hand mucky with. And so when we talk about the right hand of God, that's God's active. So if we say Jesus is at the right hand of God, so wherever God is active, there's Jesus now. He's like this, the, the tool or the weapon that God now wields to do what he does. And so when we say Jesus is in heaven, we're saying he is in the immediate presence of God. Mm-hmm. And it's not a kind of, there's this one place that we haven't found yet. You know, hiding behind a, too many galaxies for us to see. How that works it didn't please the Holy Spirit to tell us because we don't need to know <laughs> how the how and the and and where you know we is is beyond our, our our competence and it's not important for us. But that it is the case is really important. And there are three uh, specific Old Testament precedents for this. Um, I will uh, I'll put this uh, thing on again on the screen so you can see them. Um, um, we don't have to uh, read them because I can tell you one of them we, you are very familiar with by now because we very fairly recently studied it, and that is Enoch, uh, a descendant of Adam, who we are told walked with God. And then it simply, uh, Genesis simply says, slightly cryptically, uh, it just says, 
it says Genesis 1. That's completely incorrect. It's not Genesis 1 at all. Uh, it's Genesis 5. When Enoch had lived 50, 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years. And other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch is the first character in the Bible who does not die a natural death. God takes him. And Enoch therefore becomes very important as a kind of uh, figure for for a lot of, uh, for example, early Jewish writings. They they often kind of meditate on Enoch and exactly what kind of a man would he have been and what does it mean to be taken by God. It's It's not explained or described, but we're simply told that it is so. Deuteronomy 34, last chapter of Deuteronomy. Does anyone remember what happens in the last chapter of Deuteronomy? Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigour unabated, is what we are told in Deuteronomy 34. So Moses dies, unlike Enoch, Moses dies. But when he dies, God himself buries him. And we're told that he died not of old age and frailty. He died full of life. Eye undimmed, vigour unabated. So there is a, it's a sort of uh, like Enoch light. He, unlike Enoch, he does die. But God takes care of him in his death in a way that, you know, doesn't leave it to other humans to bury him and to mourn. And then finally, the third Old Testament uh, precedent uh, for the ascension is in 2 Kings chapter 2. And who is that? That's right, Elijah. Well done. Okay, Elijah. What happened to Elijah? He was taken up. <laughs> yes. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Did you notice that? He asked for the spirit. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And a few verses later in verse 15, the prophets, uh, the sons of the prophets saw Elisha and they said the spirit of Elijah rests on Elijah. So he received the double portion uh, of the spirit. So there we have these three Old Testament precedents. We've got Enoch who walks with God and he is taken by God without seeing death. We've got Elijah, the faithful prophet, Elijah, the name means the Lord is my God. Yahweh is my God. He is taken by God. And when he goes, his his disciple, Elisha, receives a double portion of the spirit that rested on Elijah. And in between, you've got Moses, who was unlike anybody else on earth because he was a friend of God. And God spoke with him face to face. And although he died, when he died, God himself buried him took care of him in his death. And you put those sort of three figures, you look at them and say, there are some kind of like these sort of shadows of 
what the sort of thing God can do. So what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus walked with God in a way that no one else did because he was sinless. He, he, he lived his entire life without sin. And in fact, he was God in the flesh. And therefore, he did not, as, as, as David writes in, in Psalm 17, in the, God did not see his holy, let his holy one see corruption. Though he died and was buried, God raised him from the dead and then took him uh, to, you know, he, uh, and, and received him at his right hand. And th- that's why the cloud and Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration is such an important image. That just like those are the, you know, the two characters in the Old Testament, apart from you know, the, the one who's, who saw God face to face, that spoke with God face to face and was buried by God, and the one who wasn't even, who was taken up by God alive, uh, because, of, you know, as, as a faithful servant, Jesus speaks with them and he now comes and does, if like fulfills in his, his own life, what the, the, the things that they were simply pointing to. He's the faithful one in all things. He speaks with God face to face eternally. And therefore, though he dies, he's buried and, but God doesn't just bury him. God raises him from the grave and then to takes him, uh, to himself alive. So what we see in Moses and Elijah, we now see fulfilled in Jesus. Moses and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus. And the ascension kind of confirms it. But the real question for us is why? Why does it matter? What's the point of it? This is the, I started with this. What's the purpose? What's the benefit to us? Wouldn't it be better if that Jesus remained on earth? And then if Jesus was alive on earth still today and, uh, say, you know, and uh, 2000 years later, surely wouldn't that be better for the kingdom of God? You could just say that nobody could doubt Jesus. Everyone would believe in him if they actually knew that this man had been alive and, and, and incorruptible for 2,000 years and still healing people. Wouldn't it be better? Why, would, why, why should the disciples rejoice that Jesus was taken from their sight? Wouldn't they be happier if he stayed with them all the time? Well, wasn't it because he was going back to God to prepare a place for them and us for eternity? Oh. <laughs> right. It's almost like you were uh, reading ahead uh, oh. to my next list. John 14. Great minds, Carol. Great minds. Think alike. Uh, John 14, verses 1 to 7. Anybody would like to read those for us, please? Oh, I can't read that. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I would go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Okay. Um, a couple more verses to seven. Uh, he's trying to get the page open. Oh, I see. <laughs> 
Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have also known my Father also. You would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay, so, why did Jesus ascend into heaven? As Carol said already, he went there to prepare a place for us. And this is why it really, really matters that Jesus ascended into heaven as the incarnate Jesus of Nazareth, as opposed to leaving his incarnation behind and ascending back without his body, leaving a lifeless body behind. The incarnation wasn't just a little detour on the way of salvation. What happens in the, in the incarnation is that Jesus, the Son of God rather, enters into our humanity. And he becomes, we heard this from Hebrews earlier, he's the exact imprint of God's nature. So he is the image of God in perfection. I, mean, I, I, I don't know if any of you remember this. We had this discussion very early on when we were looking at Genesis 1 and the creation of, of uh, you know, God, how God created man in his own image. And uh, I referred to something that Paddy you said at the time. And it's, it's, for some reason, I still remember it. He said, you know, really, we were, if Adam was created in the image of God, he was created in the image of Jesus. You know, Jesus is the perfect image of God. And though Jesus was born after Adam, Adam was created, if like after the in the in the image of him who was to come, which is Jesus, the perfect man. And he has taken, he has gone into heaven ahead of us to prepare a place for us in God's kingdom. Which is this is marital language. This is like um, uh, sort of nuptial language. This idea that he 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 leaves us behind to go and prepare a room or prepare a room for us. Which is the sort of, is, is a, uh, Jewish, uh, um, marital custom at the time would be that, you know, the, the uh, trying to keep it as simple as I can, but basically when, when a, a couple got engaged, the next thing the man would do, the, the a bridegroom would do, he would go and build a house, a home for them. Very often as a, you know, by building an, a, an, uh, extra, uh, room or extra part, uh, annexed to his, uh, own home, his parents' house. And that would be their home. And once that was finished and there was a home to go to, he would then come back and collect his bride and take her to his, to their new home. And that would be, then they would be together. And these are kind of the, like the imagery that we have in the parable of the, uh, uh, ten virgins. You know, they're waiting for the bride, bridegroom to come. He has come, you know, he's set, prepared a feast in his home. He's gone to get his bride and he comes back. And when he comes back with them, that's when the wedding feast begins in this new home. And now Jesus, says, I'm going to prepare a room for you, the you being plural, which is to say the our heavenly bridegroom has gone ahead to prepare a room for his bridegroom in order to bring her to be with him forever in there, which is why the book of Revelation, also written by John, refers to the marriage feast of the Lamb. That when we, you know, what we call going to heaven is really entering into our eternal marriage with Jesus Christ as members of the church. Which is why it matters that Jesus became incarnate, that the Son of God became incarnate, because, you know, we are, we are a certain kind of creature. We are humans. And, and the, so the body of Christ, the, the, the bride of Christ consists of humans, and therefore it makes it, it only makes sense for that heavenly marriage to take place 
if you've got a human marrying a human. You know, the church consisting of people being married to the Son of God, who is also a man. And therefore, the ascension of Jesus is his preparation for us to enter into his eternal joy, to come under his everlasting care in the home that he has prepared for us. So it matters a great deal that he ascended. If he hadn't gone there, if he doesn't go away, he's not there to, you know, he, 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 he would still be here. He wouldn't be there preparing for us to go. That he goes away is a necessary part of the long-term uh, union, that we, you know, the, the eternal union we have. Acts 2, 32-36. This is a part of Peter's uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 32-36. I've got it. Thank you. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Thank you. So, Jesus has gone to the right hand of God in order that we receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this also in John uh, 15 and 16. He talks about giving the Holy Spirit. Unless I go away, the Holy Spirit, you know, kind of come. He sends us the Holy Spirit. And when he sends us the Holy Spirit, we receive the life of God personally ourselves we receive the holy spirit of god who which is the way if you like this is the this is the means by which jesus prepares us to be with him forever we receive the holy spirit holy spirit gives us faith through faith we receive the forgiveness of sins and we are therefore made prepared and made ready um and beautified if you like to be be worthy of uh, our bridegroom hebrews 9 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, Thus securing an eternal redemption. Thank you. This is a central theme. It's just two verses in a in a long argument within the uh, at the heart of the letter to the Hebrews, which is that um, if, you, if you think of the Old Testament sacrifice, the Old Testament sacrifice, this, the the uh, the sacrifice is made, and that's part one, if you like, of of the sacrifice. So let's say the sacrifice of atonement, the animal is slain, but that's not the end of the matter. What needs to be done for that sacrifice to become effective? The blood is sprinkled on the altar. 
the blood is sprinkled on the altar. And you're like, which is the presenting of the lifeblood on behalf of the sinner to God. Now, what happens in, in, in the New Testament is that the, this one sacrifice for all of whom, of, of, of whom the, uh, uh, sacrifices of the Old Testament were all just images and, and, and shadows. Jesus Christ, he is sacrificed on the cross and then he ascends into heaven and presents his sacrifice now to God and presents it not once, but eternally. Now, when he says in that hymn, um, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, which I'm sure you all love. Uh, those dear tokens of his passion, uh, his dazzling body bears, you know, still his dazzling body bears. That the referring to the wounds of Jesus. You know, Jesus, the crucified and risen one, the one with marks of nails in his hands and his feet and, and, the, and the mark of the spear in his side, is at the right hand of God, presenting to God, if you like, eternally, his sacrifice once for all. So, you know, they, they, so whenever we plead, you know, when, when our sins accuse us, when, when he pleads our sins um, accuse us, and, and we, especially when our conscience is troubled by our sins, there stands between our sins and God, Jesus. And he constantly, if like permanently, eternally pleading his blood for us. Hebrews puts it, uh, it, it uh, slightly uh, later, you know, the, the, that the blood of Jesus uh, is pleading for us, you know, it's, it's better than the blood of Abel. And the blood of Abel, uh, you know, cries in, as an accusation against Cain. No, the blood of Jesus is pleading for our redemption. So Jesus' ascension into heaven, not only is he going there to prepare a place for us, not only is it a, a, a like prerequisite for us receiving the Holy Spirit, but also it's his eternal act of pleading the forgiveness of our sins for us. He's forever there. And in fact, we haven't got time for, I didn't have time for all of all the passages. So I, I left it out. But one of the really key things is what is Jesus doing in heaven? Well, one of the things is he's interceding for us all the time. This is why we pray constantly in Jesus name. You know, I, I keep saying this and I'm, I'm sure you've heard this more than more than twice. You know, that when we say when we are praying, we say in Jesus name, amen. It's not nearly finished, finished. You know, uh, pressing the brake, stop. But in Jesus' name, we pray in Jesus' name, or we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is to say, all our prayers are channeled through Jesus. So when Jesus, they, they go through the laundry of Jesus' blood to the God the Father. So by the time they arrive at the throne of God the Father, they have been made acceptable and powerful by Jesus, who pleads his own perfect sacrifice on our behalf. So who's asking all these things? Who do they think they are? And he says, oh, they come from me. He's our high priest, constantly uh, offering the sacrifice, the one sacrifice offering to God permanently. And he's our high priest, constantly offering prayers for us. He intercedes for us. So when we come pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Jesus himself is doing that. And finally, for now, Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. I've picked it up mid-sentence because the sentence is very long and quite convoluted. So hopefully it makes sense. Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. <coughs> Why is Jesus at the right hand of God? Why is he ascended? Anyone? I'll read it. Thank you. 
and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head of over everything from the church, which is his everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, for, who fulfills everything in every way. Thank you. Okay. That's, it's, uh, it's dense and convoluted sentence, uh, and it's only part of it. But so what is the relationship between Christ and the church according to this? Well, he is the church, isn't he? Well, what is, what does Paul call the church here? Uh, his body. The body of Christ. So Christ, yeah. we are the, the church is the body. Christ is. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. But what is that? What is Christ to the body? Um, previous verse. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Head. Thank you. The head. Yeah. yeah. Christ is the head. We are the body. And so you can almost like see the church, if, if, if you know, want to draw kind of a, a children's picture book kind of version of this, the church is the body on earth. It's like this body standing on earth, but where's the head? In heaven. In heaven at the right hand of God the Father. But the head and the body are, the, are one and the same. They, there's not two, two different places, two different things, where one's somewhere and one's in, the, in another place. But simply, only the head currently is in heaven. The body is still on earth. But, in fact, whatever, you know, whatever pertains to the head also pertains to the body. It's almost like, you know, if you think of a... What's it like a, like a silly picture of it? They say, so you're stuck in an attic somewhere and then you find that there's a small skylight and this is your way out. You know, you're, you you pop your head through your body's still inside the attic. Your head's outside, but you know, the body will follow. It'll come. It just hasn't got there yet. And if all authority has been given to the head, then where's the body? If all things are under the feet of Christ and Christ is the head and the church is the body, where are all the powers and dominions and titles and names and so on in relation to the church? Above or below? It's the power given to the ones who hold it on earth, isn't it? Those are the powers that he's referring to, but also spiritual powers like demons and so on. But are those powers below the church or above the church? Above the church. You had a 50-50 chance and you blew it, Mike. Sorry. <laughs> Correct answer is no. All <laughs> things have been placed under Christ for the church. Yeah. And if and if, if we kind of stretch the image a little bit, the feet are part of the... If all things are under 
Christ's feet, that is there below his body. In other words, yeah. that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth means that the church is also, therefore, in a position of power and authority. Not our own, but Christ's authority. But it works for our benefit. That Christ has entered into glory means that the church already enjoys the privileges of that glory. That Christ already has dominion over all things, over Satan, over his angels, over angels, over demons, over princes and governments and, and all things. That means the church also enjoys that privilege because he is ahead and we are the body. And so Christ's ascension means that we are absolutely guaranteed complete victory over all things. And in fact, already enjoying it. It's just that, you know, we haven't, we haven't quite, no, the whole body hasn't passed through to the place of visible glory. It's basically like, you know, if you use a, a different example, and let's say if you're a drowning man is pulled up to the surface, right? Okay. So the head's above the water. The body's still in water, but you know, you're okay. You're, you're no longer drowning. Even though the body still aren't, you know, still submerged because the head is already breathing. You are, you are no longer a drowning man. In the same way, Christ has already entered into glory. And though the church is still here in humility and in, in many tribulations, we are already rescued into that position of guaranteed future glory because Christ is already enjoying that glory ahead of, you know, for us. And we, and he's the first fruits of those who enter into that glory. And this is why we must never, ever, ever, ever be downhearted about anything that happens to the church at the hands of her enemies. Because his enemies have lost. Christ is already in glory. Everything happens by his will. And everything works already to his glory. And he has control and authority over all things. So if he allows the church to suffer persecution, or allows the church to suffer scorn, or allows the church to be weakened or to to be uh, moved from one part corner of the world to another, that is because it is it is his will now for the good of the church. However, wh- whatever it looks like to us. And so the ascension of Christ gives us complete confidence that this game is already over. You know, the ball's still bouncing, you know, and the, and the crowd's still got good opinions, but the game's over and he won. And we are participants in that victory because we're members of the body of him who's already at the right hand of God the Father. And we're just waiting for that day when he comes to make it visible and evident to all that he is the winner, that he is the Lord. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we are also therefore saying, and therefore we have, we have the victory. Not that we will have, we have the victory. And so the question is, where is Jesus now as far as we are concerned? Uh, Hebrews 8 verses 1 and 2 say now the point in what we are saying is this we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up not man so in one word where is Jesus? Jesus is in heaven he's at the right hand of God as we have already said he's in the heavenly tabernacle which is not visible to us. But at the same time, this also is true. Matthew 28, the end of Matthew 28, um, end of the whole Gospel of Matthew, last three verses, very famous verses, often referred to as the Great Commission, which is not a good name for it. It says this, this is on the mountain in Galilee. Jesus came to, and said to them, the eleven, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, we've learned that by now, haven't we? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So where is Jesus now? He's with us. He's everywhere. Yes and no. <laughs> yes, he's with us. No, not everywhere. He said he's where he's promised to be. So Jesus. With all believers. Yeah, he said, I'm with you. So he's with his church always to the end of the age. And that presence is linked. It, it, it comes from the fact that all authority has been given to him. It's because all authority has been given to Jesus there to go and preach teach and baptize and look what it is linked to his presence he said i you know make disciples by baptizing and teaching and i'm with you always to the end of the age so wherever people are being baptized they're baptized into membership in the body into the body of christ wherever people hear the word of christ they're hearing him and he's present amongst them and of course the one very specific place where we encounter jesus the incarnate and ascended jesus is in the Lord's Supper, where the body of Christ and the blood of Christ are offered to us as our food and our drink. Now, that's the body that was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. That's the body that was crucified, but that's the body that was raised, and that's the body that's ascended. So in the Lord's Supper, we encounter Jesus. It's like the meeting point. So, so you know, got the, the different uh, points. You know, there's the incarnation of christ at this end and there's the ascension of christ at this end and everything that happens in between and all of that's delivered to us in the lord's supper we encounter him who was incarnate born obedient suffered died raised and is ascended so both it's a both a union with him who has become like us in his incarnation it's a Delivery of the sacrifice of the cross to us, who you know, because he's given for the forgiveness of our sins, but also our union with him who has all authority and power. And that's why it's a source also of power for us and strength, because it comes from, you know, it's, it's not just the, the, the human flesh of Christ, but it's the glorified flesh of Christ that we eat and drink. And so the Lord's Supper becomes absolutely central. It's not, a, it's not an accessory to the Christian life. But it's the central focal point of our Christian life, where we encounter Jesus particularly. So Jesus is where he has promised to be, in baptism, in the word of God, and of course his body and blood in the sacrament of the altar. And we will see him one day when he comes and he exercises his authority and his power by gathering us to himself, manifesting his glory and sharing it with us. To conclude, just a couple of other texts. This one you know very well uh, from the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I'm really, really hoping that those lines make even better sense to you now than they did this morning. We confess the ascension of Jesus and his authority. And the future hope that he will come to judge the living and the dead. And similar words in the Nicene Creed. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. 
and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. In the formula of Concord, which is the final uh, historic, uh, kind of uh, chronological final writing in the Book of Concord, which is the collection of the, the uh, Lutheran confessions, the standard teaching to which our church and all its pastors uh, subscribe unconditionally, we have this said about the person of Christ. Now he has ascended to heaven, not merely as any other saint, such as Enoch, but as the apostle testifies above all heavens. He also truly fills all things, being present everywhere, not only as God, but also as man. He rules from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth, as the prophets predict and the apostles testify. He did this everywhere with them and confirmed their words with signs. This did not happen in an earthly way, as Dr. Luther explains. This happened according to the way things are done at God's right hand. God's right hand is no set place in heaven, as the sacramentarians assert without any ground in the Holy Scriptures. That's the people who deny the reality of the sacrament. It is nothing other than God's almighty power which fills heaven and earth. Christ is installed according to his humanity in deed and truth, without confusing or equalizing the two natures in the essence and essential property. So Christ is wherever God is at work exercising his power. And finally, there's also a passage from Martin Chemnitz, who was the author of that particular article in his uh, book. What I'll do is I will send this out as an email so you can all have a, uh, have a proper look. But what I thought I, we would, what we, uh, how we should finish uh, our study today, rather than uh, just uh, look at uh, these sorts of passages and discuss them, um, one of the best things, if you want to understand the scriptures, is uh, one of the best ways to do that and to apply them to yourself is through good hymns. I said this before. I don't know if you remember, but it, the traditional practice of the church was that you would have bibles in churches and hymn books at home not the other way around at some point couple in the last couple of hundred years that's been flipped around the wrong way around the other not the wrong way around the other way around um i would really encourage i mean you all have hymnals at home at least on loan at the moment if you uh, if you don't own one i encourage you to get one and i would encourage you to use them if you're too shy uh, to sing on your own at least read them Hymns are good hymns are excellent commentaries on scripture. And I thought I would share with you a particularly good hymn. This is, in my opinion, it's only my opinion, the best ascension hymn in our hymn book. It's written by uh, Christopher Wordsworth, who's a nephew of the more famous William Wordsworth. Of, um, and this is hymn number uh, 494. And if you come to church, as I hope you will next Thursday, uh, to celebrate this great feast of the Ascension, uh, we will be singing this. And I'll just read it, and if you listen to it, you'll hopefully pick up all sorts of things that we have uh, come across recently. See the Lord ascends in triumph, conquering king in royal state, riding on the clouds his chariot to his heavenly palace gate. Hark the choirs of angel voices, joyful alleluia sing, and the portals high are lifted to receive their heavenly king. Who is this that comes in glory with the trump of jubilee? Lord of battles, God of armies, he has gained the victory. He who on the cross did suffer, he who <coughs> from the grave arose, he has vanquished sin and Satan. He by death has crushed his foes. While he lifts his hand in blessing, he is parted from his friends. 
while their eager eyes behold him, he upon the clouds ascend. He who walked with God and pleased him, preaching truth and doom to come, he, our Enoch, is translated to his everlasting home. Now our heavenly Aaron enters with his blood within the veil. Joshua now is come to Canaan, and the kings before him quail. Now he plants the tribes of Israel in their promised resting place. Now our great Elijah offers double portion of his grace. He has raised our human nature on the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places, there with him in glory stand. Jesus reigns, adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. By our mighty Lord's ascension, we by faith behold our own. Thus far, the LSB, that's the first five verses. Now, as it happens, where's that's for another five verses. Uh, and I will uh, encourage you to read them when I send this to you. Because that's the first half of the hymn is a proclamation of the ascension. The second half of the hymn is then a, uh, a prayer that uh, emanates from that, those truths. It's a fantastic hymn. I hope you agree with me. Uh, and as I said, I would really warmly encourage you, if you are able, to uh, join uh, the congregation on Thursday, next to Thursday, uh, for the service of Ascension. I hope that you can now appreciate, even better than you already did, why the Ascension is such an important and, and central festival of the Christian Church um, as part of the story that begins in Advent, the expectation of coming of Jesus, the incarnation at Christmas and, and, and his manifestation in Epiphany, uh, Jesus' uh, suffering and death, uh, which is uh, Lent, Holy Week and Easter, uh, his, his, uh, his, his resurrection and his ascension and then Pentecost. So it's the final kind of the final high point before Pentecost uh, in Christ's ministry for us. Questions, comments? Thoughts. Over hmm. to you. I should I should emphasize that we could we should have taken a whole day over this, <laughs> uh, but it's okay. Ascensions every year, so we can just you know we can, we can just concentrate on one thing at a time. So next Thursday in this air we will we focus on one thing, and then next year we'll focus on something else. But has anyone got any any questions about any of this or any comments concerning it? Any thoughts that have come to mind? Well, I hope that's because your curiosity has been completely satisfied rather than you've been bamboozled into stunned silence. <laughs> Well, if not, uh, we shall close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior and that he has now ascended into glory to your right hand and that you have given all power and authority over all things to him for the benefit of the church. And we thank you that by your grace, you have called us to be members of your church, members of his body. And so we pray that for the sake of his blood, which he constantly pleads for us, you would graciously look on us with your favor. Hear our prayers, guide us through our life, forgive us our sins, and prepare us to receive, to be received into your kingdom in glory like his. Bless your church everywhere, that uh, in faithfulness your word will be preached and taught to all nations, 
that more and more disciples be added to uh, Christ's church. And that you'd preserve us from all evil and keep us steadfast as we follow him who died for us and who is our redeemer and our king. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all.